0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 24. I'm going to read from the New American Standard tonight. This is Psalm 24. It's a Psalm of David. Saying that the earth is the Lord's, and all it contains the world and those who dwell in it, for He has founded it upon the seas, and He has established it upon the rivers, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, he who has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come to this psalm, brief as it may be, it is full of so many riches that attest to the work of our risen and ascended Savior. We pray that you would incline our ears to hear your word, that we might have our hearts inclined to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that I find most striking when it comes to books and movies is how the same stories seem to get told time and time again. This is not a criticism of movies or of TV shows or of stories. I think there are some stories that are naturally worth retelling in different perspectives from different vantage points. Why is it uh, that there are so many uh, ladies who love seeing a good old-fashioned romantic comedy sometime typically in February? Uh, Why is it that young boys love to see stories about uh, superheroes? Uh, defeating the bad guys, and these superheroes who have uh, powers. Um, I think there's, they all point to something that is embedded in the human heart that speaks to things that the Lord has created us to love, creating us to love nobility and courage and love and integrity and faithfulness and so many things. One of those stories I think we keep seeing over and over again that uh, we love, even from children, is the story of the conquering king who comes to claim the throne. Uh, you think of the story of King Arthur, uh, or even the, the end of return of the king. You know, what grown man has not been brought to tears as Aragorn comes uh, to receive his final inheritance? Uh, or you think of uh, the four Pevensey children and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as they are crowned king and queen at Caer Paravel as the kings and queens of Narnia. I think that's something that you see here, and it's something that we see in the ancient world. These ascension narratives are so critical to understanding the things that resonated in the heart of uh, our, our forebears, even millennia ago, not just among Christians, but even pagans. You know, you were to go back and see, read some of the earliest stories that have ever been committed to writing. It is about kings and heroes. Um, you read, for instance, the Enuma Elish. Uh, the Babylonian creation account. Very weird in so many ways, but it is about the ascension uh, and the royal coronation of the Babylonian king Marduk uh, as he triumphs over all these other pagan deities and ascends the royal mountain and brings order out of chaos to this pre-existing creation. These ascension stories are critical to societies and communities and understanding things that we love about the, that the eternity that has been placed in our hearts and what we find here is something that's no mere story it is a psalm it is a royal accession psalm but it's one that proclaims the majesty not of a fictitious arthur or some pa- pagan uh, babylonian demonic deity but it is a psalm that a brings acclaim to the Lord of heaven and earth who is the King of glory, who takes His rightful seat uh, as the God who is enthroned over the cosmos. I'd like us to take this psalm in three distinct portions. First, I'd like to consider the matter of foundation. You see that here in verses 1 and 2. And secondly, I'd like us to consider ascension in verses 3 to 6. And then finally, in verses 7 to 10, I'd like us to consider Procession. So foundation verses 1 and 2, ascension verses 3 to 6, and procession in verses 7 to 10. I I think this uh, picture of royal ascent is so critical, even in reading. Um, portions of the Old Testament. How many of us have tried to go through our Bible reading plans? And you make it through Genesis with all these wonderful stories of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you think, oh, this is so wonderful. And you make it to Exodus and you have pictures of Charlton Heston as Moses, uh, you know, uh, saying, Pharaoh, let my people go. And you think, man, could this get any better? And you have the great Exodus account and the Lord's triumph over the demonic deities of Egypt. And the deliverance through the Red Sea, and that's just the first 15 chapters of 40 chapters of Exodus. And then you get to chapters 16 and 17, and they're stuck in the wilderness. And then you get to chapters 25 to 40, and it reads, it feels like you've begun to read some type of kind of ancient Near Eastern Home Depot list. What is this about the construction of a temple? This seems rather anticlimactic. If this were to be uh, put on the big screen, this is surely not the way people would want the story to end. And yet, that's because I think the ancient world has, uh, their stories are attuned to different sets of expectations uh, what we see, and, and you see this in, in the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, is the Lord brings Israel through the Red Sea, and the nation begins to sing the Song of Moses, saying, the, the horse and his rider, he has triumphed over the sea, and then it brings uh, to the stunning climax the Lord will reign forever. And then what you see in the rest of Exodus is the construction of the Lord's footstool to his throne. Isn't that what the Ark is described? Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, the the Ark of the Covenant is seen as the footstool of God. So this this description it ends in this massive construction project that is an extended meditation on the fact that the Lord himself reigns. And yet, in contrast to uh, the, the Enuma Elish and all of these other ancient Near Eastern stories that, that tell the stories of one rival deity triumphing all, over all these other rival uh, uh, deities over and, and bringing order to some type of pre-existent creation, we're given the true story of the Lord of heaven and earth who stands unrivaled, who has no other rival before him. There are no other Uncreated beings. Creation itself is an extension of his power. It is a manifestation of his glory. And in your Babylonian myth, creation was not a creation. It was something that stood alongside these deities. And yet what we see here is the same theme that we see in Genesis 1 and so many of the Psalms as it begins with a a shout of acclamation and praise that the Lord has founded the earth upon the seas. All creation shouts and attests to the majesty and power of our God. He who spoke the worlds into being by the very word of His power. That's much more powerful than some ancient deity t- simply taking some type of like, um, eternal matter and giving shape to it. Here, here's the God who d- doesn't simply go to Home Depot and buys a bunch of lumber and builds himself a house. Here's the God who says, you know what? I'm going to make trees. And I'm going to build myself a house. Let there be trees. Such is God's power. And that's how the psalm begins. It, it attacks that saying that the earth is the Lord's and everything that is in it. It is founded by the one God who is good, the one God who rules over all. Therefore, all creation is good. This is not a God of chaos. Verse 1, where it says here that the earth is the Lord's, and all that it contains the world. There's a word that is taken in other contexts, in every other context, to to mean the inhabited world. This is not just simply some formless mass. This is the God of, uh, of dignity and order. He stands over an ordered creation. Like a master architect, He has spread out the earth above the waters. He has laid the beams of His upper chambers in the sky above, as Psalm 104 says. He makes the clouds His chariot. The Psalm speaks of heaven and earth as as a massive cosmic temple, as it were. And in the midst of that, all of creation is good. Isn't that that resounding, uh, that repetition that we see uh, seven times in Genesis 1? "And And it was good, 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 and it was good. And behold, he stands back and looks at all he has made, and he goes, oh, it's very good. That's what we see here. It's so interesting that, that, that our doctrine of creation is so important. It, it gives shape to our understanding of the world around us. Paul himself cites this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, as uh, the church is living in the midst of a pagan society that tries to treat holiness and sanctity and right relation with the, the pagan gods and deities based off the type of diets one is having, And the food that's being offered to idols, Paul says, don't you remember? The earth is full of the goodness of God. Everything in it is good, even foods. And therefore, these foods are to be received with gladness and thanksgiving because the Lord has made them all. And in the midst of this created order, the foundation that God has laid we find that the Lord Himself sits enthroned above all, seated on His holy mountain. the mountain that is not Asgard, that is not Mount Olympus, but is found in the highest heights of heaven, Mount Zion. And so the psalm now takes a new direction as it speaks of the Lord's own ascent, as it were, up the mountain as He claims victory. What we find here is an enthronement psalm. Uh, many scholars think that this is likely a a processional psalm that was sung as Israel would return from battle. You know the stories. How is it that Israel would go to battle as they were making their way into the promised land? Well, it was fairly simple. The priests would take the ark, the footstool of God, and they would lead the charge, depicting what? That the Lord is the one who leads the armies into battle. The Lord is the divine warrior. Think of what Moses would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And so as the priests would go forth and the ark would be led forth into battle, uh, Israel would fight against the Canaanites. And they would triumph over them as they follow the Lord of the armies, Yahweh, Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts is He. The Lord of the battle. And so as the ark is returned, as the Davidic king returns and he begins to ascend the hill, this is likely seen to be some type of royal procession. He, here the Lord returns and his king as his representative victorious from battle. Again, this is why those ascension, uh, that ascension imagery is so important in the Old Testament. The ark of the covenant with the Lord leading His people through the Red Sea, triumphing over the gods, and having His own throne erected. Here we see that picture of a processional and a return from a victorious battle of a victorious king who has gone out leading the army of Israel in the conquest of her foes. And He returns this king from battle. And here we see the context. It's not simply a local skirmish. You note verse 1, it is a global context. The whole of creation is, stands as the spectator of this massive cosmic battle that has just transpired. And they look on with reverence and with awe. And so it raises the question, who is worthy? Who is it that's worthy to ascend the heights of Zion? Who is it that can ascend the mountain of Yahweh and enter his holy place? You read Ezekiel, for instance, and we are reminded that Eden itself stood at the base of God's holy mountain. It was the narthex, as it were, that garden, to ascend the heights of Zion? Who can attend this royal celebration? What is the required prerequisite to be part of this massive cosmic victory? You you think of uh, uh, the the Queen of England just passed a few weeks ago, and they had the big enthronement ceremony, the coronation of Charles III. How do you get on that invite list? So we see here, who is it that would stand in the presence of such a heavenly processional? Is it the one who is the most noble of noble birth? Is it the wealthiest who can ascend the heights of Zion? Is it the most powerful? No. What is required is holiness and integrity. The one with clean hands and the pure heart is said to be the one who can ascend Zion's heights. One who does not nurse his appetite to idolatry or vanity. One who is free from the contamination of sin and iniquity. Remember what our Savior Himself says in the Sermon on the Mount, the great royal sermon of our great King. It is the pure in heart who shall see God. Reflecting, I think in part, off of this psalm and so many other themes that we see throughout the psalms, that it is those who make themselves ready. Those who desire to seek the Lord of hosts. Those are the ones who will see God. And yet, verses 5 and 6 are striking, aren't they? Because it says it's the man who shall receive a particular blessing. This is actually the reason why I read uh, from the New American Standard tonight, because there's a certain difficulty in in addressing the end of verse 6. You you look here at verse 6. I'll read again from the New American Standard. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. I think the ESV puts it the face of the God of Jacob. And yet, that's not literally what it says. You probably see a footnote there that the ESV rightly recognizes. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, Jacob. So is it simply talking about the God of Jacob, or is it talking about Jacob? And then why is Jacob being brought into view here? I think it's an important question. One that I find myself continuing to struggle with. And yet, I think it's clear that the man who shall receive the blessing is Jacob. And if we, if we hear those two words in connection with one another, the, the language of blessing and the language of Jacob, we're immediately, our attention is immediately drawn back to the story of Jacob, aren't, isn't it? Here is Jacob, the man who is granted a blessing even before he's born. That it's the younger that shall serve the older. And it's not the older who receives the blessing. Here in the context, as we know in the Genesis story, it is Jacob who receives the blessing, and he spends his entire life as one who strives after it. And we all know the story as we make it to Genesis 33 and 34. As he's returning back to his homeland, he encounters a stranger in the cover of night, and he begins to wrestle with this figure. And in the midst of this struggling and striving, this mysterious figure says, let me go. And he says, I will not let you go until you what? Until you bless me. And the mysterious figure then touches the joint in his hip, and he's rendered impotent. And in the midst of the striving, he is wounded. And yet he walks away with a limp and nevertheless walks away victorious as his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. Because then that mysterious figure says, you have striven and wrestled not simply with man, but you have wrestled with God. And so Israel means the one who strives with God or the prince of God. It is a picture of that royal figure. Andrew Bonar is one of my favorite commentators on the Psalms, sees this term Jacob as a title for the Messiah for that reason. Here is one who through his striving, one who through his conquest is wounded, and yet on account of that receives the blessing that has been prepared for him. And it seems to be speaking on the one hand of a particular individual. Verse 5, of this individual with clean hands and a pure heart who ascends, the victor who has demonstrated his purity and his integrity in battle. And yet in verse 6, it's said and spoken of not simply as an individual, but of an entire generation. A whole generation that pursues God with reckless abandon and purity of heart. Well, the question is, which is it? Is this speaking of an individual or of a people? And this is the question that I'm wrestling with. No pun intended. This is the great struggle. I really love what Andrew Bonar says on this. As part of me wants to look at all y'all and say, I don't know. But what I think is, is going on here, I think Andrew Bonar is onto something here where he says that Jacob becomes a title for the Messiah. As he simply puts it, the Messiah is the man. The Messiah returns from battle as the representative of the people and he opens up the path to enter the holy city in such a way that the inheritance of the Messiah's people is this, that they too may enter this heavenly city to see God face to face. Because isn't that what we see in Genesis 33? Here is Jacob who has seen God face to face and has lived. I think there's great significance here. One, that I don't feel like I'm able to get to the bottom of this evening. I wish I had more time, maybe a couple more months or years. But the fact that it speaks of Jacob and the blessing... And the striving with God and the blessing he receives and the fact that here is one who sees God, that the pure in heart who ascends to the heights of heaven and sees God. Here is this victorious king who has returned from conquest and he, he ascends the mountain. And it says this becomes the heritage of the whole generation, not just a single individual. And this ascent, this royal ascent of this messianic figure Leads way, gives way to a heavenly procession. You see here in verses 7 to 10, fling wide the open gates. Here the gates of heaven themselves are open. Again, when it's speaking of uh, God's holy mountain, it's not simply speaking of Mount Moriah. This is speaking of the heavenly city. And it leads to the question who is the one who is worthy to enter? You kind of, it's, it's almost like this ancient knock, knock, who's there? But this isn't a joke. Who is it that can enter? What's the king of glory? Well, who is this king of glory? As the question and answer goes back and forth in this kind of antiphonal response. We've already seen that the king of glory is this man with clean hands and a pure heart. One who is not sworn to idols. Seems to be a human figure. And yet it says here in this response that the king of glory is the Lord himself. Who is this king of glory who enters heaven in triumph? The king of glory, it is he who is worthy. It is the Lord himself, the Lord who is the Messiah. It's so interesting. It says that this man, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, says earlier he is the one who's going to receive the blessing from the Lord, but now here at the end of the psalm, it says it is the Lord. You you, you see the struggle that's going on here? The Messiah who receives the blessing from Yahweh is Yahweh. The Davidic Son is the Son of God ascending on high to take His rightful inheritance as the enthroned King. As the Lord Himself returns from battle, we find that it is the incarnate Lord, the Davidic Son who comes to take His rightful seat at the heights of heaven. In his rightful place, as king of the cosmos. In other words, this psalm describes the path of the righteous one to the throne of glory. This psalm is a psalm that speaks of Christ's own ascension. This psalm here impresses upon us in liturgical form the significance of Christ's ascension. Here is the King who has come to claim His crown. He is the Messianic Son, God in the flesh, who victorious in battle on account of His purity has ascended to the heights of heaven to take His seat as the King of creation. It anticipates John's own vision at the end of the Bible, doesn't it? Revelation chapters 4 and 5. As the nations look around, or the angels I should say, look around, and the 24 elders who are seated around the throne, there is that question, who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power? And John says he looks and he sees seated on the throne the triumphing lion who is also the lamb who was slain, the one who was wounded, and yet by and through that wounding has procured a blessing for the nation's. The great blessing that all through Him can be made clean to ascend Zion as well and enter into heaven itself. It is the great song of heaven that the angels sing even now who is worthy. It is Him who is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come, the Creator King who also stands simultaneously as the Redeemer King, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, who has conquered death by His very death. What a battle that must be. And is thus, on account of this great victory, granted the authority to execute final judgment on the nation's I think if we take a step back and we consider this psalm in light of the previous psalms we've considered over the past few months, isn't it striking that Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross where the great victor cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, we see the great triumph that comes through His death. And Psalm 23 speaks of His great resurrection. The one who passes through the valley of the shadow of death and even as he passes through, he will not fear because he is one who is granted life and pleasures even in the midst of his enemies. As surely goodness and mercy follows him all the days of his life. And he is said to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. Psalm 23, the psalm of resurrection. Psalm 24, here we see the great psalm of ascension. Isn't that striking? Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. And isn't that what Jesus says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus? As they're sitting there trying to comprehend the work of, of Christ, Him who, who they, they thought was the Messiah, and He rightfully was, but they, they, they failed to understand, and Jesus tells them that. So, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken all that the Psalms and Moses had spoken. And it is said that Jesus, beginning with the law and the prophets, and the psalms, begins to proclaim to them everything that the scriptures speak concerning himself. The Psalms tell us of the person and work of Christ. And here we are given, we're given a picture of the royal ascension, uh, that, that great story that causes every heart in here to burn within us of the king who has finally come to take his rightful seat as king not simply over England or France or the Holy Roman Empire or Russia, but the one who takes his seat in the heavenly places. Here is a psalm that calls us to praise and adoration, to bow down before Him who is alone worthy. Worthiness that is demonstrated in his victory at the cross, where he himself was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He who, on account of his resurrection and ascension, has been vindicated on account of his righteousness and thereby is proven to be the one worthy to receive an eternal inheritance. One who has been deemed worthy, Psalm chapter 2, to inherit the nations. You know, when we come to read the Gospels and we ask ourselves, what is the proper, or even the rest of the New Testament, we ask, what's the proper backdrop for reading the Gospel stories? Might I suggest to you this, that the Psalms, as well as the rest of the Old Testament, are the proper prescription lenses that help us understand what the Gospels are narrating to us. As they depict for us Christ's victory and enthronement as the incarnate God And the Davidic king who has been given a kingdom, a kingdom without partition, a kingdom with no boundaries, where every square inch of this universe belongs to him, and a kingdom without expiration, as he has given a kingdom without end, as he is a king without successor. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we contemplate uh, your majesty and the majesty of your Son, we ask who is worthy to receive the everlasting throne and be committed, uh, handed over to him the authority to render judgment upon the nations, to reckon with all the injustice and unrighteousness that has befallen this earth. We are told the great story of the work of our Redeemer, and we say Christ alone is worthy to receive honor and power and glory and dominion both now and forever. We pray that you would use the psalm to train our hearts. Praise your name for the honor and dignity that is due that name that stands above every name, the name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess on that last day that name that Jesus Christ is Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.